Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. And if you are able, would you please stand as I read the first 11 verses. 2 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 11. Be reading from the English Standard Version. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, and Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king over Hebron, over the house of Judah, was seven years and six months. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You can see the clouds coming which covers the next couple of chapters. There's much more going on here than just a political struggle. In verse 1 through verse 4a, we see a kingdom established under God's guidance. And we see that kingdom opposed by what happens in verses 8 through the first part of verse 10. Another kingdom inaugurated by human ambition. There's a truth in this passage that is really reiterated in Scripture from beginning to end, and that is, you know what? People are just not eager to receive the kingdom of God. There are three paragraphs or sections in our passage today, and each one 
says something about the struggle that we have being part of God's kingdom now while we're on this earth. So first in the first section of verse 1 through the first part of verse 4, we see this kingdom under God's guidance. Saul, the first king of Israel, is dead. But David makes no move until he inquired of the, of the Lord in verse 1. How important is this one simple fact here? Well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2 and verse 4, David inquired of the Lord. And he did that to find out if he should go and rescue the town of Kilah from the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 8, we see it again. David inquired of the Lord to find out whether to pursue the Amalekites who had raided the city he was in, Ziklag, and taken all of his family and all of his men's families and all their possessions. And now he seeks divine direction as he figures out what the first steps to take are in actually assuming the kingship because Saul is now gone. Now, those of you who have been paying attention, and I'm assuming that's everybody, realize that David hasn't always inquired of the Lord before he does something, which has gotten him into some big trouble. But he's learned his last lesson in this regard, and so he inquires of God here. He seeks divine direction as he figures out what steps to even take to see how this assuming the king thing should work. In other words, what we see here is an attitude of the heart, do we not? David is under the authority of a wi- and of and willing to submit to his king. He's under the authority of the king And he is willing to submit to the king, and that is so evident right here in verse 1. This is a much bigger deal than we first realize when we read this. David's question is, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? God authorizes him to leave Ziklag, which was, remember, in Philistine territory, and go to Hebron in Judah. And why is this so important? Because by going back into Judah, accompanied by all of his men, 600, and all of their families, David is doing something dramatically decisive. He is burning all the bridges with the Philistines behind him. There can be no more deception with that king, Achish, the Philistine king, who had granted him permission to even live there when he was trying to get away from Saul. David then breaks all these ties with the Philistines. Another way we could say this is there is no turning back now. 
And why to this city? Why to Hebron? Well, it's a good strategic, strategic initial city for David's rule as king. Hebron is at 3,000 feet elevation. We're going, that's no big deal. Amarillo is 3,600. Yeah, but Amarillo isn't 20 miles from the ocean either. This is the highest city in Judah and the most important town in Judah, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And I just want to make sure that everybody understands Jerusalem hasn't been conquered yet. Um, David went there once, but that's one of the things he's going to do. Jerusalem is just, you know, over there somewhere. It's important, but it's not even under total Jewish rule or anything else at this, at this point in history. 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem is this place. And it's rich in covenantal memories For instance, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah are all buried there. Hebron has been given to the faithful Caleb when Israel occupied the land after all their wilderness warnings. So this is a plum, this is a gift. God gave Caleb this particular place. So here is where God's kingdom... And God's work of carrying out his plan of redemption that will be fulfilled in Christ, this is remarkable to think about, is first to become visible in the world. Little taste. And that's true to those, as Jesus would say, to those who have eyes to see. In verse 4a, we see the second time that David is anointed. We've got to keep track of these because it's been weeks and weeks since the first time in 1 Samuel, and there's going to be a third time that's final. But here's how it goes. And notice that this second time is an anointing to a partial reign for the kingship of the tribe of Judah. Did you notice that? The first time David was anointed was back in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. And this was a private anointing from Samuel, intended primarily just to shape David's own understanding and get him to understand the sense of call call that God gave him in his life, what what he was being prepared for. Private ceremony. And the third time David will be anointed is coming up in in chapter 5 here in 2 Samuel. And this will be when he is anointed as king of all of Israel. Everybody got that? First time was private. This time he's anointed over partial reign as king of Judah. And thirdly, sums all up in chapter 5 over all of Israel. And that's really important to recognize. And it's important, we're going to try to think about that a little bit, what that may picture for us sometimes in this world. So right here in our text, David is a far cry from being king over all of Israel. 
But remember, he asked for direction for the next steps in order for that to happen. And it's really not until 2 Samuel 7 that David receives the charter or the covenant which clearly says that God's kingship in the world will express itself through the Davidic dynasty. That's not until chapter 7. Ultimately, that dynasty is going to result in whose reign? The Messiah's. Historically, this is really important because for the first time, God's chosen king visibly reigns on earth. The king from which Christ will come now rules in Hebron in Judah. And it's reason to celebrate. If you're going through and seeing how Christ is seen, taught, and looked forward to in the Old Testament, this is a big deal right here. Because this is in your face. This is who will precede the Messiah. This is the type of the Messiah. It's on David's throne that the Messiah will reign. So this is big. Now, do you see the irony in this as well? David rules in Hebron over only one tribe. A small beginning. And it's not really very impressive. We like impressive. We like it all at once. And I don't know whether you've noticed this, and it's taken me over six decades to even come to grips with this, is that God usually does things in his redemptive plan in little bitty steps. Which is why we live such frustrated lives. We want all the glory now. We want all the promises now. We want it all to be great now. And God works it out like this. We can learn a lot from this then, can't we? As we look at how God has worked out his plan of redemption. What can we learn? Do not allow what looks like a not very promising forerunner to Jesus the King blind you to the very real fact that God was at work and is now at work in building his kingdom. You don't have to have a concert at every intermission to know that God is at work. Do you all understand what I mean by that? Do you realize that in the entertainment that our culture enjoys now, that there has to be some firework, smoke, music display thing every time there's a break? We have been taught this. It's what we breathe. It's what we expect. It's what our world thinks is the way it should be. The other side of that coin is, when's the last time you've ever seen a band march at halftime in a football game on television? Never. This is just to get us to come to grips with the difference between what the world displays as the way it happens and the way God actually works. 
And we need to adjust our expectations to this. Otherwise, we will be always disappointed with everything. It's not big enough. It's not showy enough. It's not loud enough. It's not bright enough. It's not whatever. This is a small beginning that we see here with David. And you see, what we have as a promise as God's people is that it is a sure thing. It is a sure thing that God will accomplish what he sets out and says he will accomplish. And why? Because it's God who's doing the work. And again, should be every Christian's, one of their favorite verses is Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And how many times has that one verse settled your own soul? This truth is what keeps many of God's servants on their feet. How many of Jesus' disciples discover that their labor is done on the stage in Hebron where they may see very little of the power and the glory? Does that hit home? Probably does, doesn't it? Secondly, David makes an appeal in the next paragraph to extend his kingdom. See a little political maneuvering along with some spiritual discernment here. But it's all sincere and it's genuine. Remember how the men from the town of Jabesh-Gilead had valiantly carried out their secret mission of removing the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall in Bethshan? After they were killed, after the, the loss in that incredible battle. And these guys took those bodies back to Jabesh and buried them honorably there after that fall of Saul and the Philistine victory. Remember all that? Well, David finally heard of this, of, a, of this courageous kindness and decided to appeal to these men for their allegiance to him as the rightful king. Now, why is this such a big deal? Because Jabesh Gilead is in the north, way up north, on the east side of the Jordan River. Far from Judah. See what's going on? And Jabesh-Gilead, as seen in their act of honoring Saul, had always been a pro-Saul town. Why? Because Saul had delivered them once, early on. And they never forgot it. They were loyal to him as the king. But Saul is dead now, and these people can't live merely on the fumes of their fading memories. So David, here in verses 5-7... through is sincerely complimentary to them. Sincerely. He respects them for what they did. Because it almost sounds like something he would do, doesn't it? Yes. And 
It was also at the same time blatantly political. And one writer said it's earnestly evangelistic all at once because he's appealing to them for their loyalty. He thanks them for their kindness to Saul in verse 5. He blesses them and proposes what he will do towards them as a king in verse 6. And he invites them to do another courageous thing, give their allegiance to him as king. What David is saying is this. Let them be the first in the north to acknowledge his kingship. So this is David's first actual recorded act. Are you thinking? Now what does that signify? David, the forerunner of the Messiah, is asking for allegiance from a town under another king, Saul's youngest son, reaching out, recognizing their loyalty to the previous king, commending them for that. See the picture? It's all over the place. When you start seeing these little connections, they're everywhere. So David's first recorded act was to offer friendship and comfort to a group of Israelites with the implication that David may be a Judean, but his heart belongs to all of Israel. What can we learn from this paragraph? Well, we learn that a right response to Christ's or David's appeal can be costly. We're sort of in our own Jabesh Gilead, the already but the not yet. Jabesh Gilead was sandwiched, you see, between David and Abner, who was the power broker in this whole Ishbosheth thing. Between the true kingdom in its small developing form and the worldly counterfeited kingdom that expects my total allegiance. Abner's, all the rest of Israel. So to defy this latter worldly kingdom takes courageous guts. Does it not? And such guts only come from God's grace. It has always been this way, and it will always be this way. And we need to come to grips with that if we haven't. And P.S., we don't ever find out how Jabesh Gilead responded to David's appeal, or even if they did it all. Another one of those interesting things that God does in his word. He just kind of leaves it out there for us to have to ask the same question. You see where this is going, I hope. And then we see the actual kingdom described. That's this worldly kingdom in verses 8 through 11. One commentator explained it this way. The promotion 
of Ishbosheth as king was not only a continuation of the hostility of Saul towards David, but also an open act of rebellion against the Lord. The Lord who had rejected Saul and chosen David as prince over Israel and who had given such distinct proofs of this choice in the eyes of the whole nation that even Saul had been convinced of the appointment of David to be his successor upon the throne. Get it? Abner didn't care at all what God wanted. He was in absolute rebellion against him. He wanted what he wanted. This was his chance to gain power, influence, and who knows what else. He already had some, but was Saul dead in a disastrous defeat against the Philistines, his uh, currency was running a little low. There is, again, more here than just opposing parties. Abner was Saul's cousin and his army commander. So Abner knew that God had promised the kingship to David. And later, this is so today, later when Abner had no other viable alternatives, which we'll see, he actually played that card to further his own interest. In other words, he tried to move on both sides all the time to accomplish his own desires. In chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, and 17 and 18, the next chapter, this is a summary, so we'll just, we won't fill in all the details here, but listen to this. God do so to Abner and more, this is Abner speaking, by the way, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So when he didn't have any other way to go, he acknowledged, Yeah, I know, God chose David. I know this. I'm a big part of it. Let me help. It's always a political season somewhere, even in Scripture. So in opposing God's chosen king, what was Abner doing? He was opposing God's kingship and God's will. He knew that, but chose to fly in the face of it. You know what? He's one of the guys that's described in Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3, which says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. Jesus, in telling the parable of the ten minas, you remember this? Minas currency. 
also perfectly describes Abner in Luke 19, verses 11 through 14. Won't give you the whole parable, but listen to this part. As they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Glory now, all the promises. Poof, we're in. Romans are gone. Therefore, he, Jesus said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return. He called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minus and told them, engage in business until I come back. But here's the point. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. And that is the issue. There is a whole lot to consider as we see Abner making Saul's youngest son king over all the other tribes except for Judah in outright opposition and rebellion to God's choice of David. We need to consider this. We need to think about this. We need to see what is similar about this. We need to ask if our hearts are aligned like we say they are. David's kingdom is facing opposition before he even assumes the throne. Nothing new here, is there? And the kingdom conflict will continue that we're talking about. And I hope each of us realizes this. Until Jesus comes back in power and glory. If we're part of God's remnant, we must not allow the defiance of all the current day versions of Abner to deter or depress us, because it certainly can bring us low. It can. And we need to recognize that. If I was going to ask you who would be one of the greatest heroes of the Protestant Reformation that did not come from Europe, but came from Scotland, who would you say? John Knox, one of the most influential, powerful, stand-up-for-the-kingdom-of-God, men of God in history, to kings, queens. He was absolutely incredible. And you go, yeah, what a hero. He had it pretty good. Oh, yeah? In 1566, he actually wrote this. He was so dejected as a prayer. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Put an end at thy good pleasure to this my miserable life. For justice and truth are not to be found among the children of men. Folks, nothing has changed. As we approach this fall, we have got to have that attitude from God to know that He 
is still on his throne. And he is working. But he doesn't work like ambitious men work. Only the house of Judah was following David. Verse 10b. And you know what? This is our place and our calling too. Even in low times, even in a day of small things, Are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? Are we okay with that? Because God, all through his word, gives us insights that empower us as the Spirit applies them to our own hearts and minds. Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my, what? Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's where we need to be strong. Not in our own spirit, but the Spirit, Spirit, indwelling us in ours. We must not let the condition of the world we are in lead us to despair and dejection. If that can overtake a man of God like John Knox, we're all, we're all open to it. We're, we're vulnerable to it. Now, I, I don't think John Knox stayed there very long, but if you go back and you look at the, what we would call heroes of the Christian faith in the church, many times, how many of those people do you know of that you could name that at, toward the end of their lives there was all of a sudden unbelievable trouble, heartache, all sorts of pain, all sorts of unmet expectations, all sorts of attacks. Spiritually, it is amazing if you go back and just look at a few. And we're talking Spurgeon. You just go down the list. It's very, it's very rare to find anyone who didn't. God knows what he's doing. And he lets us experience these things so that his glory will shine through as his purposes continue on. And I smiled really largely in Sunday school today. We persevere. We run. If we can't run, we walk. If we can't walk, we creep. We, we keep going. 
no matter what it may look like, there's no reason to really be discouraged. God is at work. We have it on good authority, really good authority, let's be honest, really, really good authority, that Hebron and its environs will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. Are you smiling yet? This is encouraging. Daniel 2, verses 35 and 44, in case you want one other of the many places. Remember the vision. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind just carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's our hope. That's the truth. That's what we can count on. And we can be a part of it. We are right now. So the encouragement is to make the most of the little part. Make sure your heart is set on the right things. In the right place. Because if you don't, you won't see much of the behind the scenes little things that God does to encourage but if you get a taste of this at all it all starts showing up and God makes you aware of it the joys of seeing prayers answered of seeing people smile who are hurting of seeing people come out of the woodwork that you never expected to see anywhere helping, giving, teaching, serving That's the beauty of the body of Christ. And that's our picture. Speaking of the body of Christ, we get to partake of the Lord's Supper today. Which is the visible and physical reminder of the joy that we have as God's people in the midst of whatever. If the whatever gets bad, The reverence that we're privileged to give him as we live our lives, as his very own possession. And a reminder of the faith that we can, by his grace, put in him every day, no matter what. What a plan. Jesus knew we needed to be reminded that he, God, God came to earth 
in a human form to know to suffer what we experience to live the perfect life that's demanded of us to be that acceptable sacrifice where he gave his body in our place to incur the condemnation and the wrath of God for sin and he paid it all his blood was spilt which covers us completely forgives us do you need to remember yeah I do I need to remember